the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up we get the latest on the flooding around the Cootamundra region and also a bit, it's feared about a thousand, at least a thousand livestock are thought to have died following a fire in the central tablelands. The 16,000 hectare Alpha Road fire near Hill End is uh, now classified as being controlled but quite a number of livestock have died. It's a bit hard to know exactly how many properties are affected at this stage, um, possibly up towards 90-odd properties, um, so we, 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 we don't have access still to a lot of areas and landholders don't have access either, so it's been a little bit difficult for them to, to know if they need assistance or not, but we're certainly working through the list quite steadily. You can always send us a text here at the country. Our 0467 982 will have, have the latest on the fires shortly. But before we do that, an evacuation order. It had been issued for parts of Kudamunda in the southwest of New South Wales after heavy rain last night. The Bureau of Meteorology says uh, 100 millimetres of rain was recorded in the region in the last 24 hours, leading to significant rises and flash flooding along Mutama Creek. And uh, joining us now is the State Emergency Services Benjamin Pickup and uh, uh, to get it the latest on the, the catchment situation I understand things are improving somewhat in Cootamundra. Yeah thank you for me. They, they are we've um, just been able to issue a downgrade the evacuation order to a watch and act and just encourage people not to enter flood water as we start to see that water recede back into Matama Creek um, which is really good news that it's going down so quickly. Indeed. So, and mainly centred around the flooding, mainly centred around the town of Cootamundra? Yeah, definitely. The main impact we see in this catchment area is in the township of Cootamundra. Um, and while we didn't experience the same level of flood inside the town as we did in November, I definitely saw some impacts from the, the rapid flood water. Absolutely, yes. So, and in November, 400 properties had to be evacuated, so nothing on that scale this time. No, no, it had much much lower impact with this this rainfall, uh, which is good news for the community. And what's the Bureau saying about rainfall into the future? So our expecting further thunderstorms this afternoon and this evening, um, just as a result of the convective activity. However, the rainfall totals are expected to be a lot less than what we experienced overnight in the area. Okay, so that's good news there, and you've been able to downgrade that order, so that's the latest on that there, which is good. Uh, downgraded from an evacuation order to watch and act. Yes, that's correct. Benjamin, appreciate that, and uh, as always, stay listening to ABC Local Radio to get the latest, if that situation does change, but at the moment, some positive news there in Cootamundra. Yes, definitely, thanks so much. Benjamin Pickup from the State Emergency Service, it's eight minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And improving conditions around the Hill End fire as well, although uh, they believe almost a 1,000 livestock have died, uh, at least, they're thinking, uh, following that fire in the central Tablelands. And uh, more than 200 sheep had to recently been euthanised uh, due to animal welfare concerns. That 16,000 hectare Alpha Road bushfire north of Hill End is now being classified as being controlled. Some more benign weather conditions there. And uh, a small amount of rain over the weekend as well. At least four houses have been destroyed and 700 livestock have, been, have perished in the fire. But uh, those damage assessments are still being conducted and that number is expected to rise. Karen Roberts from the DPI says crews are on the ground at the moment with a focus on animal welfare in the immediate aftermath. 
to date we've assessed over 1,300 sheep and they've been okay, uh, but we've had to euthanise a further 200 sheep on welfare grounds and we've had to have requests to bury um, around 90 sheep to bury those stock. It's usually on site if that's appropriate, but we look at the most appropriate uh, method to, um, to deal with those animals at the time. How many sort of farms or, or landholders have you been able to assess so far? So we've, we've looked at around 29 properties um, and had requests for assistance from about 19 of those, most of which are, are, are complete. It's a bit hard to know exactly how many properties are affected at this stage, um, possibly up towards 90-odd properties. Um, so we, we, we're, we don't have access still to a lot of areas and landholders don't have access either. So it's been a little bit difficult for them to to know if they need assistance or not. But we're certainly working through the list quite steadily. So there could be a, a still a while to go, um, unfortunately. So those 200 um, livestock that have had to be euthanised, that's obviously very unfortunate. Was that just over the weekend that that occurred? Yes, yeah, so we, we got access uh, to, to, to some of these properties late last week. It was still quite dangerous there early on. So over the weekend when we could get access in there, we were able to, to help the farmer with those animals. Um, they were quite badly injured. What's it like on the scene there in the aftermath of this fire? Um, it's, it's never very nice on a fire ground. It's certainly very um, distressing for both the landholders and our field crews to see animals who are injured and, and need assistance. It's a lot of work to assess those animals and, and to euthanise them. Often they've lost a lot of their infrastructure, sometimes sheep dogs, so sometimes it can be quite difficult even to get access in to see the animals and to muster them through these burnt, burnt areas. It can be quite dangerous. So you're very careful um, when you're working in those areas. It's quite rugged terrain up there where the fire's burning. Is that making it sort of challenging to do a full of assessment once the fire has already gone through? Yeah, it makes it very challenging. Just getting in, you know, there's a lot of dangerous trees. It's very steep. So often it takes a while for for landholders to track down their, all their animals and, and to realise, you know, the sorts of impacts that are being seen on these properties. So the terrain certainly doesn't help with that. Do we know how many livestock were in the area before the fire started? So several thousand animals are registered in that area. Um, not all of those animals will be affected and, and those numbers shift around depending upon how many animals are on the farm at any one time and obviously not all of the property will be impacted. So I understand it's quite early days but is part of the challenge with sort of assessing the damage at the moment the fact that you and landholders I suppose can't actually access part, parts of the burnt area still? Yeah that's correct there's still large chunks that we can't get into and they're quite dangerous to, to get into with trees and, and so on and the active fire so so it's still very limited access for, for everyone. Our crews are under escort um, to get in there to for, for these urgent animal welfare cases. So, so it will still be a while before we can assess a lot of that damage and the impact. So 200 sheep euthanised already, you said. I imagine that's quite a harrowing experience, I suppose, for the non-sort of agricultural person. Why is it important that this work is done? Well, animal welfare is all the centre always the centre of, of what we're doing. We don't want those animals to suffer any longer than they have to. It's, it's been a horrific experience for the animals and the landholder. And those, those injuries can be quite painful. So we certainly want to, to um, make sure that the animals um, are relieved of that suffering or they're treated for their injuries as soon as possible. How are the landholders sort of going as you sort of go through and, and, and assess them? I imagine it's quite a difficult situation. 
Yes, it is. It is difficult for for the landholders to see these animals suffering, and and that's why we're there to to help them with these instances and and try and address those that animal welfare as soon as possible. Because it's it's not very nice for them to see, and sometimes they just need a bit of help to to deal with that situation, given all the other things that are going on, um, including fighting the fire and, and dealing with some of those impacts on their personal lives. What should landholders be doing, especially if they might have lost a, f- a fencing or, or things like that? Is there support available um, for farmers in that position? So look, it's still very early days in terms of the support available for, for landholders because we haven't quite got um, a grasp on the sorts of damage that's out there um, to get some of those um, services in place. And, and there's a number of organisations who are involved in providing those services. Certainly we would be encouraging landholders to complete our primary industries damage survey, which is available on our DPI website, dpi.newsouthwales.gov.au forward slash damage, so that we can get a clearer picture of the damage that's occurred and all these organisations can start to focus support into those areas. And you mentioned before there was emergency uh, fodder supplies available. Have you had many requests to take that up? It's probably still early days, and certainly um, in terms of getting, them, getting access to determine if they, if they need that fodder. It has been a really good season, um, and there's a fair amount of pasture in paddocks if, if they haven't been burnt. So we haven't had a lot of fodder crests to date, but certainly um, if, if people need assistance, we're encouraging to ring in and, um, and ask. Karen Roberts is the Incident Controller for Agriculture and Animal Services for that bushfire that was burning out of control. It was burning out of control last week. It's now uh, they're uh, containing it. It's uh, near Hill End. If you're a landholder that needs assistance in that uh, area, the number to call is one eight hundred eight one four six four seven. And as Karen Roberts mentioned there, there are emergency fodder drops also available if you need those. The number again, one eight hundred eight one four six four seven, And you can uh, also uh, let the them know about the damage by uh, going to their website and filling out uh, details there as well. one 800 It's 16 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. We're still on severe weather events now, heading to Queensland and the Gulf Country where the Gregory and Leichhardt rivers are both still in major flooding. River heights are coming down after peaking over the weekend, but not fast enough for many mobs of cattle caught in the floodwater and stranded on small patches of high country. Helicopter pilot Jack Clark has been in the air for the past few days doing food drops and evacuations in Burketown and surrounding countries. And Alice Marshall caught up with him while he was in the chopper flying to Gregory yesterday evening. Uh, it spread across probably a, uh, the when it got to the worst of it. Um, it's probably there's an ocean from about 40k out of Birkdown back to Birkdown, obviously all the way out to the ocean. Out of front, in parts there, would be 5k wide, 10k wide, spots probably more. Yeah, the biggest thing is the depth of the water. It's never, never been so deep in a lot of places. Been a lot of never happened. Been a lot of houses. Been through a lot of houses. Never been through before. Hundreds of years of being there. So. Yeah, and what are you seeing, cattle-wise? Ah, oh, catastrophic, catastrophic losses. Cattle swimming around up there for days on end. Here, so they, and you just can't get to them all. Um, yeah, the worst of it's where they 
where thousands are trying to get on one little dam square or up into a turkey's nest and they're just smothering each other and yeah, they're dying all underneath. They're just a pile of cattle. Yeah. There's plenty of cattle flat rounds hung up and hung up in trees and that. Yeah, every day you go, there's more and more scattered everywhere you look down. There's cattle hung up in trees dead. Many still swimming though. Yeah, there's still plenty swimming, mate. As well, it keeps changing. They butt up this northern end of Burketown, especially on the eastern side of Burketown. He's pretty bad, eh? They bloody he's going to be in it for days and days and days. But, um, but it's the, it's the other ones you can do something with at the moment. Um, they're getting pretty hungry, eh? Look, they start getting some hay and them get something in their bellies. Yeah. Are you anticipating you'll be doing lots of feed drops over the next coming yeah. days? Yeah, mate, as the water recedes, yeah, it'll be just pulled us up today. We sort of couldn't put any out. The water's too deep to put any hay out, so did as much as we could, but, um, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't put it at where it sort of needed to all fill up their bellies and water a lot of them. Yeah. All right, and... Over the coming days, I guess, are you anticipating that that number of cattle lost is only going to get bigger? Oh, definitely, yeah. No, she thought of it, you can't do much about because, yeah, they're just in the middle of an ocean. You can't take them anywhere. And now they've been in the water that long, they're sort of, uh, you can't move them. They don't look, at, look, don't look up at you. They don't want to move off you. They're starting to, start, the brain starts to sort of get a bit funny. Eh? They don't want to move off you. Yeah, they've sort of given up. Yeah, they, they tried to save horse today. We walked through the flood water and um, put a put a rope around his neck. And, yeah, he wouldn't lead. He wouldn't move. Wouldn't he couldn't push him. Yeah, he just sat there. That's helicopter pilot uh, Jack Clark of Diamond Helicopters talking about the flooding in Queensland's Gulf Country. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales. A new term has been introduced into financial circles and it's got farmers worried. It's called unrealised gains. The concept has come up as part of the federal government's plan to double the tax rate on the nation's largest super accounts from 15 to 30%. Labor says it will affect about 80,000 people who have over $3 million in their super fund. And as David Clawton reports, that includes a lot of people in the farming community and it's got them and the federal opposition hot under the collar. This taxation of unrealised gains is something that never occurs within our tax act and it's going to affect far more than the very small number of people the government indicated they said 80,000 many many more that's susan lee deputy leader of the federal opposition she says labor's policy on superannuation is shambolic a lot of farms and small businesses hold their assets in self-managed super funds and run their businesses through self-managed super funds and in terms of holding assets the suggestion that you would be taxed on unrealised gains in those assets on the way through before you actually sell them is impossible and it's not an approach that has ever been taken to taxation law in this country before and nobody has any clarity and all we are being told is we'll work out the detail later on. Tony Mayer from the National Farmers Federation is also scathing about the policy. What the Treasury's done is uh, 
is demonstrate perhaps a couple of things, that he doesn't necessarily care about agriculture or he doesn't understand agriculture, and that's pretty disappointing. $3 million sounds like a lot of money to the average punter, but farmers don't get super contributions from employers. They have to build up their own, and Tony Mayer says self-managed super funds are the way they do it. Assets like uh, the property and and other assets that the business might have uh, can be put into superannuation to make sure that the employees of that farm, if that can, in, in, if it is the owners in that case, they're not necessarily um, paying themselves superannuation like a government employee or would or an, a corporate employee. So this, the farm goes into a superannuation account, and it does have to build up over long periods of time. So it does take you know many years for that asset to appreciate, and that could be the the lump sum of the superannuation package for for that business. Now, um, when the succession planning situation comes around, if it's you know parents leaving the farm and their children taking over, it gets really complex around how that asset can be divided up from a superannuation perspective, and what it might do in this worst case scenario is you know dampen investment, uh, hold back uh, succession planning. We know we've got an ageing population. In- you know, we actually need to work through, and it can't just be a, a blanket statement that, you know, because you've got more than $3 million in assets, and it does sound like a lot to, you know, if you're, you're living in urban Australia and you've got $3 million in your superannuation account, but a lot of people would say, well, that's quite nice. I wish I had $3 million in my superannuation account, but when you look at it from a farm business asset point of view, uh, you know, you'd be, be struggling to get uh, a moderate, decent-sized farm for $3 million these days. Julie Scofield from rural financial services firm Boyce says the proposed changes to superannuation are a massive issue for her clients. And while most of the publicity has been around the $3 million cap, she told Cara Jeffrey the biggest issue is the new tax on unrealised assets. Here's how she defines that. The difference between uh, the purchase cost and what the market value is at the time And so um, people may have purchased property, whether it's farms or commercial property or residential property within the super fund and they've experienced um, a valuation because property needs to be revalued quite frequently when held within a super fund. So that's what we talk about, the unrealised gain. And it's not just the farm that could be taxed under this proposal. Listed equities as well. So any assets that have gone up in value in a super fund environment, but it's really, really important to note that it's for people with balances greater than $3 million. Before these proposed changes would come in, is there any way that people can put it into farm management deposit schemes or anything else that you can do and get it out? Uh, My biggest recommendation to everyone is to wait. Let's get through the um, state election and also the federal budget in May and that hopefully will provide more detail um, around what the changes will be and and let the lobbying happen um, as well because that will have a big impact upon the final outcome. There's a school of thought that taxing unrealised capital gains on land might help reduce housing market inflation and budget deficits, but it could be farming families as well as Australia's rich who could be paying the highest price if the policy gets through the parliament. That report from David Clawton, Cara Jeffrey and Christy Reading. And you might have some thoughts about that. You might have a super fund yourself and it might impact on you. 0467 922 684. You can send us a text here at the Country Hour.
It's 24 minutes past 12 on the program at the moment. Uh, Shortly we'll have uh, some news headlines and then weather details. But before we do that, uh, let's look at the rice industry because last year they set a goal to increase water efficiency by 75% in three years. To help achieve that, a new entity has been created to research rice varieties that don't need as much water called Rice Breeding Australia. Reporter Romy Stevens spoke to the organisation's new CEO, Georgina Pengilly, to find out how things are going. It's been an unusual rice growing season for southern New South Wales farmers Neville and Brooke Hollands. Their crops at Burraboy are getting fed fertiliser from the sky. This doesn't usually happen early in the rice growing season, but Neville Hollands says heavy rainfall in 2022 changed the game. We call it a throwing crop. It's had no preparation. We just sowed the seed on unprepared ground. No banks done anything like that. And uh, yeah, it was time to give it some food, so we gave it some nitrogen. He says the soggy conditions during planting meant they were forced to learn new ways to prepare their crop. Lots of new challenges that we've never come across. Very wet. Very awkward to move machinery around paddocks. It's just a real head clanger, really. The Hollands family has been growing rice in the Murray region for 80 years. During the millennium drought in the early 2000s, Brooke Hollands says planting a crop wasn't an option at times. It was really tough. There was people coming around telling you that you weren't even able to have a green lawn at your back door. And... That's heartbreaking because when you know, you're struggling to get anything green out in the paddock to not be able to have green, it's tough. But just like they adapted to rain last year, the pair changed their ways after that dry period. They ramped up rice production in paddocks with clay-based soils that use less water. They also started to use rice varieties that don't need as much water to grow. Brooke and Neville Hollands aren't the only growers in the New South Wales Riverina who have changed how they farm to save water, with the entire industry looking to grow more rice with less water. It set a new target of 1.5 tonnes of rice grown per megalitre of water by 2026. That's compared to the current average of about 0.8 tonnes per megalitre. Australian growers already use about 50% less water than the global average, but CEO of Rice Breeding Australia, Georgina Pengilly, says that needs to be taken a step further. The Australian rice industry is a leader in water productivity and we obviously want to stay being that leader globally. So it's about ensuring that our rice growers are productive, profitable and sustainable into the future. Rice crops are susceptible to cold temperatures, so a blanket of water is needed for almost the entire growing season to keep it insulated. Research is helping to reduce the amount of water required to grow rice. One of the ways in which uh, we can combat that is by using genetics to breed varieties that are able to grow with less water and so Rice Breeding Australia has been formed to be able to do that and to take varieties out that will actually accelerate that opportunity. Trials have been happening at Gary Kanagi's farm near Leeton. To be able to give the breeders a chance to do the trials in a commercial situation, like on farm, so they're not under a glass house or anything like that. It's how I will treat it as my normal crop. And if those trials can advance and and become quite successful, then they can be rolled out to the other farms. And if that means bigger yields, maybe less water perhaps, 
it's got to be a win-win for, for everybody. Georgina Pengilly hopes it won't take long for the trials at Gary Kanagi's farm to become varieties suitable for growers. Can you tell me what's going on in front of us here? So Romy, what we've got here is a pair of late stage trials for Rice Breeding Australia, which is the rice industry's breeding program. So what we're looking at here are different lines that we're hoping will progress through the program and end up being uh, varieties that growers will have access to in three to four years time. How many different lines have you got here? So we've got approximately 30 different lines here that we're looking at uh, and so they're here replicated so that we can have a look at how they perform out in the field. Over the next five years we will be looking to take the program to 10 times the size it was in 2022. While there's growing anticipation about the potential for new rice varieties that don't need as much water, researchers could face some challenges over coming years. For example, a variety that suits farms in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area might not necessarily work for the Hollands farm, which is about 200 kilometres further south. Neville Hollands says the research needed in the Murray Valley is for cold-tolerant varieties. We get colder nights than the MIA, so if we can get a super cold tolerant variety that the marketers want, that would be really good. That's something Georgina Pengilly says is being looked at. We've got trials throughout the whole of the um, rice growing region, so that's where we look at the different lines that are coming through, we see how they perform in the different valleys and we look to taking the, those best ones forward for the growers to have and to you know start to meet those water productivity targets. More than 2,000 people are employed in the rice industry with 450 in the small town of Leeton working for Sunrise. Mayor Tony Renica says the town relies on the industry's success. That means there's families, that means there's kids going to our schools, that means there's more teachers required. Those teachers come along, they, they have to live in town, they buy houses, sporting clubs, community groups, all those things prosper. While it's an exciting time for the industry, growers like Gary Kanagi are concerned about how achievable the water efficiency target really is. It's very aspirational. Whilst it's nice to have a number up there, whether we achieve that as an industry, because different varieties will, will yield differently, so to have the whole lot lift to that level will be a major challenge. Neville Hollands also thinks it's an ambitious goal. I think if they can keep researching into new varieties to shorten our growing season, I think that's where the majority of it will come from. But water practices, soil types, it's all part of it. So, yeah, hopefully we can get there. With research under the Rice Breeding Australia program only just getting underway, it's unclear how much water the new varieties could eventually save. But Gary Kanagi says safeguarding the industry's future is crucial for everyone. Rice needs water, simple as that. We need a good supply and if it's you know, year in, year out, then we can produce you know, good crops. Good crops make plenty of tonnes, tonnes of food. Simple as that, we can feed people. Gary Kanagi, who's a Leeton rice grower, he was ending that report from Romy Stevens. You're listening to The Country Hour, 28 to 1. Shortly we'll have a look at dairy prices and the weather details as well. But before we do that, some news headlines now from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Uh, some argy-bargy on the uh, campaign trial today about uh, the announcement yesterday from the Coalition uh, for the proposed Future Fund for Children. Uh, Labor is saying that the $850 million that's been set aside for the fund could be better utilised, including uh, for the education system. Uh, now, under the fund, the coalition would set up an account for every child aged 10 and under with an initial $400 uh, deposit. Uh, now, 
Labor is saying if they do get in, they probably won't go ahead uh, with that fund. So that is purely a, a coalition promise. Uh, meanwhile, the Premier Dominic Perrottet uh, has rejected comments from one of his former ministers, Victor Dominello, that he was forced out of the uh, position. He was the Minister for Gambling. He was he claims that he was forced out of the position by clubs New South Wales. He's given an interview to Four Corners, which will be aired tonight. And he claims the lobby group undermined him and ultimately forced him out of the portfolio in 2021. Uh, but Mr Perrottet is rejecting that, saying he was not forced out uh, and that it was just a, a decision that he made as he was putting his cabinet to- together and decided to move him on. Uh, as you guys talked about earlier, the state emergency services that appears flash flooding in the Riverina town of Cootamundra is easing. More than 800 properties were asked to evacuate this morning due to a rapid rise. Uh, damage assessments will be carried out this afternoon, and it's the second time in five months that the creek there has flooded. 38-year-old man has been charged with murder following the discovery of a body in the central west. Police were called to a house in Peak Hill, north of Parks, yesterday after concerns were raised about the welfare of the occupant. Uh, Investigations are ongoing, but the 38-year-old will appear in Parks local court today. And Saudi Arabia is going to create a new uh, national airline that will fly internationally. It's going to be called Riyadh Air, and it plans to serve more than 100 destinations worldwide. Uh, by 2030, and they uh, say it's going to create 200,000 uh, jobs. Mm. And the Oscars are underway. Um, oh, your favourite time of the year. Oh, yeah. Haven't, <laughs> again, haven't seen any of these films. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, award for uh, Best Costume Design was just handed out. Now, Catherine Martin was nominated for that for Elvis, but she's just moved, uh, just missed out to uh, the person who created the costumes for the latest Black Panther film. Oh, right, okay. But we still have Kate Blanchett up for uh, Best uh, Actress Award for the role in Tar. And Jamie Lee Curtis won for... Jamie Lee Best Curtis, Supporting. yep. And, uh, Which her, I don't think her mother did win. Janet Lee didn't win. She was nominated but didn't uh, win all those years ago for Psycho. No, I can't see it here on the... Yeah, no. but, but uh, yeah, uh, that's my recollection. But, okay. So, yeah, she was pretty happy about winning, apparently. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, it would be. Saw the vision. Yeah. <laughs> she said, I won an Oscar. Mm. <laughs> I don't think she was expecting to, considering her start in careers was in horror movies. Yes. Mm. Yes. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A career killer. Some of those films. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. All right. Thanks yes, for that. I don't Adam. think anyone in Friday the 13th or uh, <laughs> sort of Calvin went on to Oscar bigger things. No. Scream. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Thanks for that, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. And uh, let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Neil Fraser at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Hi, Michael. Have you seen any of those movies at all that are on no. the Oscars? No. No, I've seen yet. Pinocchio. The kids wanted to see that, so I saw that. Oh, right. Yeah, that was pretty okay. good. The one that won the best animation. So yeah, yeah, Tar sounds like it's a good one, but haven't seen that. I've yet, seen the Banshees so. of Inner Sharon too. I thought that was pretty good, but I don't know right. whether it's going to win. No, mm. we'll find out shortly. I guess we will. Yeah, what's happening in the weather? So this rain yeah. around Cootamundra was a bit of a bit of a well, worry. Yes, yeah, it all occurred in the wee small hours. Uh, very intense. Rainfall at one stage, so it caused a lot of problems at Cootamundra. Good news is that's all the weather that's producing all that has moved further north, but we still have a severe thunderstorm warning out for the central west there, including places like Parks, Forbes, and Peak Hill. So, still. So, you're just watching it, was watching the weather there? Yeah, there's a warning out that may see some heavier falls there, but for Cootamundra itself, it has eased off. The, mm. the upper level of load that caused all that has shifted 
northeast, so it should be um, improving there. They may not get much weather from now on, so that's a good news for there. But uh, elsewhere in the state, still uh, quite unstable, so expecting potentially some severe thunderstorms to uh, redevelop around mid-north coast Hunter region, and also further north in the central west and even getting to the northwest slopes and plains area this afternoon and into the evening. So it's still quite unstable, but for tomorrow, that upper level system moves through, so we'll just see most of the weather contracting to the coast and eastern ranges. Still some showers around with onshore flow. There's a trough sitting out of the low out near Lord Howe Island, a strong high to the south. So onshore flow bringing moisture into the coast and eastern ranges, but further west, still a risk of a thunderstorm in the northeast tomorrow, but doesn't look like being severe. But it ramps up again for Wednesday in the northeast, so potentially some severe thunderstorms again in that northeast corner, but generally dry for the rest of the state. And then dry and hot is going to be the, the word for the rest of the week from about midweek onwards, so fire dangers are going to be elevated. Mm. So, the, yes, the spotlight back on the hill end fire as a result of that, they reckon. That's right. Mm. Yeah, Thursday looks like being the worst in the coming days. Lots of wind and lots of heat. So it's not going to, it's going to get quite hot inland uh, pretty quickly. So by Wednesday, it should have max temperatures in the mid to high 30s and then a lot of that will make its way to a lot of the coastal areas as well so very hot for Thursday and, and Friday and even into the weekend be some relief if you're right on the coast with a couple of changes coming through there's one coming through the southern half of the coast later Thursday another one on the on the Saturday but certainly it's going to be hot and dry so once we lose all this shower and storm activity over the next couple of days the word is dry, hot and um, windy at times. And for quite a uh, large portion of the state by the sound of things. That's right, mm. yes. Yeah. So luckily the wind isn't going to be a major factor apart from Thursday. So yeah, if the wind doesn't get too too nasty then it should be uh, not too bad. Mm, okay, well, we'll keep, keep a, a watch for those, those fires and stay listening to ABC Local Radio for any changes there by the sound of things, particularly sort of later on in the week. Uh, that's when that's that, right. it's going to be hotter and, and drier. Um, thanks for that, Neil. Okay, no worries. Thanks it's uh, 21 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Well, let's uh, turn our attention to dairy now because global milk prices have tumbled from those uh, 2022 lofty levels. Processors and dairy cooperatives entered uh, the year discounting expensive inventory made with their high-priced milk. Meanwhile, higher inflation and rising interest rates are pressuring consumers toward a more frugal purchasing type of behaviour. Milk production growth uh, emerged in 2023 as well in many key expert export regions including Australia and expensive input costs remain a clear headwind for farmers uh, as well as dairy cow, uh, cow slaughter rates have also increased as well. The dairy market price uncertainty remains uh, across uh, many regions and many dairy products. That's according to the Rabobank's Michael Harvey. That's right. I mean zooming out here and you talk about global pressures there's certainly, we're certainly keeping a very close eye on global market settings and, and that's you know part of the reason why we had farm gate prices here in Australia jump to record levels to start the current season that we're in. Um, but you look at where things are at in that global market at the moment, we are in a pretty significant downturn, and, and that comes down to simple supply and demand fundamentals that are behind the market. But you've got milk supply that's growing again in most export regions. Australia is a small part of that export pool, but not not 
not one region that's growing, but outside of Australia, milk production's growing again everywhere. Um, you've got China, who are you know, always the maker of the market. They're not buying as much product from New Zealand and the global market at the moment, which obviously loosens the market. And you've got this situation, you know, broadly speaking, where consumers are paying more for food and, and are certainly paying more for dairy as part of that food inflation story. So there's a there's a level of demand softness in, in some markets and some categories around the world that sort of all bundle together and why we've got commodity prices that were at record levels at this time last year have now fallen back 30 40% depending on the product and that's the, that's the global context around what happens with milk pricing going forward here in Australia. So you're expecting then that the inflation story will see a softening of demand everywhere including in in Australia which isn't isn't great news so a short-lived sort of spike in the market for pricing for farmers. Yeah, I mean, dairy demand in, in a lot of the big dairy markets like Australia, like in Europe and like in the US, you know, there's going to be a certain level of resilience. So we're not expecting significant volume just declines in terms of total dairy consumption. There's certainly going to be a combination of trading down, you know, in the dairy aisle from, from you know, branded products and to, to value offerings, those sorts of things. But so like is, going for know, cheaper options? That's right. You, you know, consumers and households are under significant pressure because of the broader cost of living pressures. They need to tighten their belt when it comes to grocery spend and, and you know, tightening their belt around dairy consumption is part of that. So when you're just looking at the global situation, you, you'd be certainly suggesting that, you know, dairy demand is, is a little bit soft at the moment because of that cost of living pressure. But you mentioned figures of 30 and 40%. So that sounds like, you know, quite a bit softer from places like China. Oh, that, that's a drop in pricing, so commodity pricing in US dollar terms. And, you know, we had, the important context here is we had record high commodity prices at this time last year, and that was really what set the bar for farm gate pricing in the current season. Those commodity prices have come back 30 40%. So they're now back around, you know, five-year averages. July 1 is the new season. June one's the new deadline for milk pricing. There's certainly going to be an element of softer global prices that feed through into farm gate prices. And talking about you know uh, you know higher value commodities, so that means things that you know the dairy cooperatives and the processing companies are focusing on. So is is there a a potential uh, hit to their bottom line then when because they are sort of focused on increasing value, you know, value adding. Yeah, look, look, there's no doubt that, I mean, there's cost of, there's cost pressures right across the dairy supply chain and farmers would know that in terms of what they've been paying for fertiliser and fuel and purchase feed and things like that. But there is significant cost pressure downstream. So when you look at dairy manufacturing, they're obviously paying a very high price for their milk, which is a core cost of goods sold, but they've had other cost pressures in their business, whether it's packaging and distribution, labour availability challenges, all those sorts of things. So there is that margin squeeze in the supply chain now What's going to help the dairy companies in their margins is obviously, you know, having passed through higher costs to consumer, that, that will help with margin restoration. Uh, but, you know, there's still that challenge for the dairy companies that despite everything that's going on around farm gate pricing in Australia, you know, milk supply is continuing to contract and that obviously adds pressure in the supply chain around efficiency and it, it keeps competition for milk very intense amongst the dairy companies because Australia's milk production, you know, it, it's going to be down another couple of percent this season and, you know, a really tight milk supply environment. Is that because of the weather conditions? Oh, it's a combination of factors. There's no doubt. I mean, there's been flooding in, you know, New South Wales and Queensland, which have had an impact. There's been flooding in uh, in northern Victoria as well. And outside of those flood-affected areas, there's obviously just been excessive rainfall, which has not mean, has meant not ideal weather conditions. But there's also, you know, a structural 
consolidation in the, in the size of the industry because we have seen a number of farm exits uh, in the industry. So it's a combination of all those things while we've had you know quite a significant contraction in milk production this season. What about the trade wars with China? Is it likely to improve? Are we likely to maybe be sending more dairy to China? Uh, there's always that there's always that discussion around China because it is our largest export market on a volume and value basis, and there's no doubt that there's always um, long term there's opportunities to grow exports into China because we look at the China market, we still think there's quite a long runway in terms of volume growth and the size of their import volumes over the medium term. I think the reality at the moment for Australia is we we, we have a finite volume of milk for export, so we are actually rationalising and consolidating the number of markets we're exporting into to China will be an opportunity moving forward assuming there's no major tensions or anything like that but when you're just looking at the global market conditions you know there's not a lot of upside coming through from there in fact there's downside pressure that's likely to feed through into the system the reality is you know the commodity basket and the ingredient basket which is still a big component is a lot weaker than what it was at this time last year. Rabobank's Michael Harvey it's a quarter to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Australia is about to ink the AUKUS nuclear submarine deal. You'll hear from a former US nuclear sub commander on just what it's like to manage a nuclear reactor and advanced weapons, all while spending months at a time deep below the ocean surface. And a future fund for kids. The New South Wales Premier's bold plan to set up investment accounts for children as part of his re-election campaign. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. Well, the trucking industry got together in Tamworth over the weekend to talk about the chaos created by the floods and to look at ways of dealing with the shortage of drivers who've been lured over the years to the mining industry. Reporter Grace O'Day went to the Livestock Bulk and Rural Carriers Association annual conference to listen to a panel that addressed the key issues. She spoke first to Mick McCulloch from McCulloch Bulk Haulage about a new roster system they're using that mirrors the mining industry, given, giving drivers seven days on, seven days off. At this stage it's been working very well. Uh, what invites drivers to it, they get paid for their week at home so, and they're on salary. It's Well, you get paid for doing nothing, everyone wants to do that, don't they? I'd like to enjoy, join them actually, but um, yeah, so it's the, the uptake of it's been very good. During the panel discussion, you mentioned this competition you have been facing with the mines for workers, with mining offering a more attractive lifestyle to workers. Do you think this new system has alleviated some of that pressure your business was facing? Yeah, well, it's got drivers knocking on the door again. You know, we're, you could run an ad 18 months ago, 12 months ago, Facebook, Seek, and you will not get a driver apply. And the mines have just basically raped all of our employees, pay them a lot of money. Um, it's very attractive to people, and you can't blame them from doing it, but they, because they're, they're very focused on lifestyle rosters, and you can't beat them, you have to join them. This obviously would have uh, increased your overhead and how much money you're spending because you're paying for workers to have that week off. Has that had an impact at all on your business? Yeah, well, the... The, um, the way we work our trucks with a single driver, you're losing five to seven days a month in their time off. So we're basic, that's where we're getting our extra productivity to fund it. We, you know, we're basically getting a 30% increase in, in turnover, which funds the extra wages. I'm with Jim Reardon from Reardon Grain. You've been raising this issue of flood-proofing the major transport roads and transport routes. Uh, on today's panel. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. 
we had the incident this year where in 2011, 2016 and then again in 2022 we saw the Kibben Way uh, flooded for, for a number of months this year, for th- nearly three months. And there's a section north of Hilston, uh, Wellanthry Creek, uh, Lachland River crossing, which has probably got about three kilometres to four kilometres of road that could be lifted. And I think when we drove through that section of road in a land cruiser one day, it was up at about, got to about 900, um, and then it went over a metre. So it stopped all vehicles fundamentally crossing it. But that section of road stopped pretty much all the trucks to North Queensland through to Victoria and Melbourne, stopped all the access from all that livestock, uh, goats, grain, uh, bananas out of the Atherton Tablelands, all those high productivity vehicles that are trying to access markets were basically stopped unless they wanted to divert through Broken Hill and then or divert through uh, Dubbo. Now, to divert through Dubbo from Cobar for some of those high productivity vehicles is impossible because access is not available for those size vehicles through there. So to go through Broken Hill, it adds additional uh, 540 kilometres. Then you have the access problem where you don't have the drivers run out of hours. So it becomes a massive productivity uh, burden to everyone for a section of road that uh, we would estimate cost $5 million uh, to fix and fix it once and for all. And... Uh, so it's not a lot of money in the whole scheme of things if New South Wales and the Feds are trying to talk about spending $400 million. Surely out of that $400 million we can find $5 million to fix a road that basically fixes the east coast and, and access in, uh, in years of uh, high rainfall. Have you done much talking with the governments about floodproofing these trade routes? 100%. I think it's, it's, it's certainly they're looking at that because the problem is as soon as we leave those main roads... Um, uh, what we call the high productivity roads then we go to our secondary roads we then get the impact of destroying the secondary roads which is what's happened this year which is coming at a much greater cost than say five million dollars to fix the Kibben Way we're talking you know we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to fix some of these secondary roads now um, which is not just the trucks but just the flood uh, the floods have um, caused so our view is fix the main arterials, flood-proof them once and for all, including the new. It's not going to be the last time it's flooded. It's flooded a lot of times in my career. It's not going to be the last time the Lachlan floods at the Kidman Way if we don't fix it. So I think we do have lay down the challenge. Let's fix these major routes, which will then help us with some of the secondary routes. I'm with Matthew Munro from the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporter Association. During the panel discussion today, you touched on Labor's proposed ban on the live export trade. How will this impact on the livestock market across the entire nation? Australia has one big connected market when it comes to to livestock. Um, When you remove an important um, outlet for sheep uh, like live export, just in one part of Australia, you have knock-on effects to all the rest of Australia as well. So just in Western Australia already, uh, when the boats aren't going, uh, you have a decrease in sheep prices uh, to the point where the processes over there are essentially you know, reduced demand, so the prices um, uh, are reduced, um, and the differential in the east and west price then becomes an issue. So 
uh, producers are attracted to moving sheep from the west across to the east. I think as an industry we have to, you know, um, be honest and say the practices that were going on previously we can't condone uh, and they needed to stop. But all of the measures that have been put in place in that trade in the last few years have drastically improved the trade. Uh, the science is saying now that the, uh, the mortality rate is about a quarter of what it was on average. I think the trade can be done properly. Uh, and if Australia doesn't do the trade, others in the world will do the trade and they'll do it a lot worse. Matthew Munro is the Executive Director of the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association. Let's go to markets. First up to uh, Corowa Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Agents penned 2,000 less than last week's sale for a total of 13,000 sheep and lambs. The quality continues to be good with all weights and grades on offer. Most buyers were present operating in a cheaper market across all categories. Medium and heavy trade lambs slipped nine to twelve dollars, one hundred and thirty-seven to one hundred and eighty-four. Heavy lambs, twenty-five and twenty-six kilos, eased nine dollars, one hundred and seventy-eight to one hundred and ninety-two. Extra heavy export types fell thirteen to twenty-seven dollars, selling from one hundred and eighty-nine to two hundred and ten. Feeder lambs were thirteen to twenty-five dollars cheaper, eighty-eight to one hundred and twenty-five. And restockers participated on the very light lambs from ten to forty-seven dollars. Mutton was well supplied, prices declining from six to twenty dollars. Heavy crossbred used sixty-eight to one hundred and fifteen. Heavy merino used seventy-six to one hundred and twenty. Medium sheep sold from forty-eight to seventy-five, and light sheep from twenty-eight to thirty-five dollars. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Let's go to Dubbo Sheep and Lambs. Numbers are back by 1,400 for a yarding of 11,800 lambs. There was only a fair quality yarding with a pretty good selection of trade weight lambs, along with reasonable numbers of heavyweights. There were also good numbers of secondary lambs and hoggets mixed throughout. Not all the usual buyers were operating in a cheaper market. Trade lambs were 15 to $20 cheaper, with the trade weight old lambs weighing between 20 and 24 kilograms, selling from 90 to 177, to average between 680 and 715 cents a kilogram. Heavyweight lambs were 25 to 30 cheaper and more in places, with the lambs over 24 kilograms selling from 157 to 218, to average around 700 cents a kilogram. The few pens of merino lambs were considerably cheaper, with trade weights selling from 100 to 124. Lambs to the restockers were also cheaper, with crossbred selling from 40 to 65, while Aussie white ewe lambs to the restockers sold for $69. Hoggets were $5 cheaper, selling to 120. We have the balance of the lambs and 10,700 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Let's go to Wagga Cattle now, Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 3,100 cattle sold to the usual buying group. Quality remains mostly secondary with a few trade cattle throughout the sale. The market continued to struggle with numbers outpacing demand. There were some big price variations along the way. Lightweight steers sold 40 to 50 cents cheaper, 308 to 450, averaging around $930. Lightweight feeder steers were back 15, 305 to 382. Medium weight feeder steers lost 12 cents, 310 to 387. Trade steers were back 15, $3 to 350. Feeder heifers lightweight were also down 15 cents, 310 to 354. Medium weight feeder heifers sold to erratic competition with prices up to 30 cents cheaper, 275 to 356. Trade heifers $3 to 330. Heavy grown steers and bullocks were back 18 cents, 290 to 344. 
Heavy cows were well supplied and prices softened 15 cents. Heavy cows 260 to 292 and the middle run $2 to 273. Leanne MLA. Let's go to Forbes Cat on our Crystal Ridley. Numbers slipped their sale with Agents Yarding, 843 head. Quality was again mixed with both planer cattle and well-finished cattle on offer. The usual buyers were present competing in a firm to easier market. Yearling steers to feed slipped 5 to 6 cents to receive from 335 to 380 for middleweights, 320 to 374 for the heavies. Those to processors held firm to sell from 344 to 390. The heifer portion followed a similar trend. Those to feed selling from 320 to 350, processors paying from 340 to 386. Heavy steers and bullocks sold from 330 to 359, while grown heifers received from 315 to 340 cents, and cows were firm to 3 cents easier. Heavy two score, 246 to 284, three and four score from 272 to 295. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. To Tamworth Cattle now. Good afternoon. Rain reduced the penning to 1,300 head. Some very good vealers to suit restockers along with a good supply of yearlings. Cow supply was well down. Quality and condition was quite mixed. A good quality line of medium weight heifer vealers sold to a much dearer trend reaching 464 cents a kilo while the steers to restock sold from 410 to 486 cents. A slightly dearer trend for the medium weight yearling steers 320 to 442 cents. Mostly quality related change to heavy feeders 338 to 3 98 cents. Firm to a shade dearer the medium and heavy yielding heifers to restock and feed, 285 to 355 cents. Heavy ground steers to process saw a dearer trend up to 11 cents, 300 to 351, those to feed reaching 364 cents. No change in the heavy cow market despite reduced supply. Medium weight two scores were dearer with a breed related component. They sold from 218 to 250 cents while the heavy three and four schools made from 255 to 292 cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Tamworth. And that's the market information for today. And we were talking earlier about that bushfire that was burning out of control north of Hill End. It's at Watch and Act at the moment. It was uh, burning out of control all of last week. If you're a landholder that needs assistance, uh, the number to call there is 1800 814 647. And of course, emergency fodder drops are also available. We were talking about that earlier. That uh, that number to call 1800 814 647 uh, if you need assistance from Department of primary industries and also you can uh, log what's happening at your place as well on their website too so uh, so all of those that information is available there and uh, you can uh, get assistance and emergency photo drops are available as well it's coming up to news time The Country Hour is your source of up-to-the-minute info in rural Australia. But if you miss it, you can always catch up via the ABC Listen app. Download it from your app store today.